Hello and welcome to the World Extreme Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen P. Wood, EM and Critical Care Nurse Practitioner, EMT, Wilderness and Extreme Medicine Fellow, and your podcast host for today's episode of World Extreme Medicine. It's great to have you joining us today. We know there are a lot of podcasts out there and a lot you could be doing with your time. We're thrilled that you're spending your time with us for today's podcast. And today, I am excited to have Mike Hudson. Mike is a Colorado native and nationally registered paramedic with over 25 years of street-level paramedic experience. He's a former Navy hospital corpsman and has worked in San Diego, Denver City, Denver County, and was a flight medic with the Rocky Mountain Flight Program. Mike currently works as a street-level mobile intensive care paramedic and EMS educator in central New Jersey. Um, But he also brings a depth of experience in both uh, ocean rescue, swift water rescue, and why we have him on today's podcast, Experience with Great White Sharks. Mike works for the Discovery Channel Shark Week production team as their lead dive safety and remote medical specialist. And we're going to be talking today about his experience as a paramedic with the Discovery Channel's Shark Week program. Mike, Shark Week is one of my favorite weeks for many reasons. I have a both intense love and intense fear of, of sharks of all sizes, uh, but especially I, I'm you know residing in Massachusetts and Cape Cod has become somewhat world famous now for our influx of uh, great white sharks. And, uh, you know, as a result of the influx of, of seals to the area, which has been, you know, really, uh, you know, something that is both thrilling and frightening for someone who loves to spend some time on the water. Uh, and I'm just very excited to hear about, you know, your work in this very interesting and niche area of paramedic work, which is, you know, working with production teams uh, and working with, you know, these beautiful animals. So Mike, without any further ado, I'm going to uh, let you uh, introduce anything else you'd like to add to that, because I know you also have a, a depth of experience. And then let's talk about your time with these great white sharks. Awesome. Uh, first of all, thank you for having me on this uh, podcast. This is actually my first one. So um, this is uh, quite a historic moment in my life. I feel like I'm important now. Um, although uh, I'm very humbled by it because I've literally looking at your past guests that have been on this program and, and your hosts and uh, faculty and, and management of your, of your operation. I'm, I'm, I'm just absolutely floored. So very stoked to be a part of your guys' group. Um, I just wanted to correct you on one thing. I'm not a swift water rescue expert. Uh, I'm an ocean rescue specialist and uh, open water rescue specialist. Uh, there are guys that uh, I pale in comparison to in swift water, although I do do some swift water rescue here in New Jersey. We can talk about that later. But anyway, that was the only thing I wanted to correct. And uh, once sure. again, thanks for having me. And so um, I, I, I want to preface this also by saying that I'm not a shark expert. 
Um, there's a saying out there, uh, you know, uh, sometimes you hear it's not what you know, it's who you know. Um, and, and this rings true when I'm doing my Shark Week stuff um, because I'm surrounded, uh, lucky enough to be surrounded by, I mean, the world's top leading shark researchers, scientists, uh, guys from the Miami Shark Lab, the Bimini Shark Lab. I've got colleagues that absolutely do crazy things with these animals, uh, all in the hopes of, you know, saving them in conservation as well as what's going on up in your neck of the woods, which are, you know, literally human fatalities from shark attacks. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm a guy who, when I go into a residential pool, look around to make sure there aren't any sharks in the water. Um, I can't, yeah, and, and I'm not kidding. Uh, uh, you know, but yeah, having, you know, uh, now, uh, you know, great white shark myself um, from a whale watch boat um, and having just in, in you know, incredible respect uh, for these animals, uh, but also, you know, being part of a community that, yes, we, you know, uh, Cape Cod and uh, surrounding communities, you know, they depend on, you know, uh, tourism. Uh, and part of tourism is certainly ecotourism. And there are people that are drawn, you know, to these areas actually because these animals are here uh, and they want to see these animals, you know, in the wild, um, but also many people who are here who, um, you know, share some of the fears that many people have probably stemming from, you know, Jaws and other, uh, you know, programs. Um, but we have had uh, some shark attacks and we've had some fatalities uh, and that, you know, certainly has created, uh, you know, a little bit of a turf battle uh, between, um, you know, tourists who want to, you know, spend time in the ocean, kayaking, uh, fishing, swimming, uh, and, you know, those who, uh, you know, understand the need for sharing our space uh, with these sharks and, and many other uh, species. Uh, and so, you know, it's an important topic. Uh, and I think, you know, the work that you do uh, and the work that your colleagues do is just so critical, you know, for people getting uh, you know, a better understanding of why these animals are here. Um, you know, uh, the actual incredibly low I frequency. I, yeah, I don't care why they're there to tell you the truth. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I, you know, what we're doing in Cape Cod right now is, um, and, and I hate to sound smug about it, but literally it's, it's down to this. Um, you know, where you're at, uh, Southern California, uh, Maui, um, there have been an increased, uh, uh, you know, increased number of, of shark accidents, uh, fatal and non-fatal. Southern California, um, and especially the Red Triangle, is seeing an absorbent amount of white shark activity. Uh, I mean, tons of white sharks, and that's actually where we're going for the sequel to our show that we're shooting in Cape Cod now. But, uh, you know, really the way my team's approaching it, and even though I'm the medic on this team, I'm also part of the expedition planning and producing it and all the marine safety and all that other stuff. Um, our big thing is, my big focus is creating deterrence because the bottom line is, and I, and I hate to say this, and I think I can get away with it because I'm not a scientist, tourist money is going to win every single time. Every single time tourist money is going to win. These small towns, you know, just like in the movie Jaws, uh, and this is just, you know, f uh, fiction, you know, turning into life. Um, if there are enough attacks, 
they're going to go out there and call these sharks. They're going to call the herd um, and call that pack and get rid of some of these animals out there, which is what nobody wants. I don't want to see that. Sharks are awesome. They're a pivotal part of the ocean. And that's why I like them. I mean, they scare the crap out of me too. Um, and I've been in the water and I'll tell you some stories, but um, you know, for the, for the most part, you know, sharks, sharks are a pivotal, pivotal piece to the puzzle of keeping our oceans alive. And if we don't have our oceans, we'll die. As a human race, we will, we will, we will die. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. And, uh, you know, I, I had actually started to write an article <coughs> a few years back that was examining, you know, just the low frequency of shark attacks. Um, and that was yeah. true for the latter part of, you know, the last few centuries. However, that changed. Um, and yeah. now we're seeing much more human shark interaction and you're absolutely right. Um, you know, vacation dollars, tourist dollars, they're going to win. And while there's certainly an attraction to these animals for, for some people at the very, you know, end, they want to spend their time in the water and feel safe. And, you know, that, that can lead to, like you said, some real detrimental effects. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about, sure. you know, I, I'd love to hear how you got into this field. Um, okay. you know, how you yeah. from being a paramedic in Colorado, which doesn't necessarily border any oceans I know of. My geography is not <laughs> from an American school system. Um, yes. But, uh, yeah. You know how you went from Colorado to working with you know uh, in Cape Cod with great white sharks. So let's let's uh, lead with that. Talk about how you got involved, and then I want to hear, and I'm sure our audience members do as well. Um, you know what goes into this kind of um, preparation for you know. What, what is a really intense, um, you know, kind of uh, both scientific but also medical mission. So I'll, I'll leave it to that. Let's start to hear about your background and then you can take us right into, you know, how do you prepare for these types of, of programs and what is your, um, you know, your role there? Um, all right, cool. I hate talking about myself. I really do. I know it sounds kind of weird to say, but um, people are interested in this and I, I really want to sell this show, meaning that I want everybody to watch at Shark Week. And we'll, I'll tell you about that at the end of the podcast. Um, it, it, I started off with Shark Week kind of weird. I, I was teaching um, over at Naval Special Warfare Group 1 um, with over at the SEAL teams. And I was asked to do that as a civilian to coordinate their paramedic program and an EMT program for their instructors because they were having a lot of injuries during training in the um, you know, in the early nineties and, uh, there were a couple of fatalities and whatnot. And, um, they were looking at training instructor staff up to EMT level. And then instead of sending their special operations technicians, what the SEAL team medics were called back then, instead of sending them, uh, to Fort Bragg and to Fort Sam Houston to do their pararescue stuff and, and go through AT Delta and do all the, um, uh, similar things that most special forces medics go through kind of that pipeline. Um, one of the big mainstays was having a paramedic certification. So instead of sending them uh, to uh, a place uh, where they could cause trouble, I guess, because team guys are notorious for raising hell, especially on other uh, service bases, um, they decided to do the paramedic program in-house. One of the things that we were able to do um, with the college I was teaching for, which was Southwestern Community College, is um, I was able to set up a, a mentorship program for uh, the SEALs who finished paramedic school. They were all done. They had their national registry certifications. They were waiting to either go to 18 Delta Goat Lab or move on to other specialty schools or whatever. Um, at that time, they would actually come out and ride with us. 
<clears throat> I particularly, I'm a street paramedic through and through. So I like working busy units. I like working, you know, quote unquote in the hood, if you can say that without being canceled. Um, I like working in the hood and I like working and serving people who don't necessarily have access to really good medical care or any other kind of things. And when I'm saying good service, it's quality service, right? So long story short, I always gravitate towards those busy areas, usually lower income, uh, because that's where the trauma's at, and that's where all the good chronic medical cases are. So I was able to take the SEAL team guys and you know put them out in the field with the paramedics, and they could actually do their skills as part of an agreement under Southwestern College. They were still considered interns and able to practice in San Diego uh, with a paramedic unit under a preceptor. So it was really kind of cool to take these medics throw them in, the, in in Southeast San Diego during, you know, the crack wars and, you know, all the stuff that was going on with the different gangs that were going on uh, in the area of, uh, of that part of San Diego at the time, you know, a weekend night, Cecile T. Medic, you'll see a shooting and a stabbing easily once, once a shift, if not twice a shift, along with some chronic medical problems. Uh, that they normally would not see as SEAL team, as team medics. Uh, they're not Green Berets. Green Berets kind of go out there and you know, do a lot of community and uh, uh, medicine and go out and kind of embed themselves with the, with the natives. Um, the team guys are out there for one purpose and pretty much know what that is. And, um, you know, they had to be, you know, uh, pretty good with trauma. So circling back around to that, some guy owed me a favor, <laughs> believe it or not. And uh, Shark Week, Discovery Channel, Jeff Kerr, um, who is uh, one of the big players, Air Jaws, right? Everybody knows Air Jaws. Jeff was going to do a very unique show out of Guadalupe Island, Mexico, which is a very remote island off the coast of uh, Baja, California, off Ensenada, about 225 miles from San Diego. It's in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing out there except a gigantic volcanic island that comes up just right out in the middle of nowhere. Like I said, uh, approaching it was just like King Kong. We approached it for the very first time. Um, but I'll take you back to the phone call from Jeff. Jeff said that he was looking for a paramedic to go to Guadalupe Island for a 14-day expedition to film Andre Hartman riding great white sharks. So... Okay. This was 19, uh, what was this, 2005, I think, 2003, whatever. Um, it's a long time ago. But uh, I, I just sat there, just, I go, this, first of all, I go, this is a joke, right? So I thought it was one of the guys uh, playing a joke on me from, from the teams and, and whatnot. And by the way, I'm not a SEAL. I just want to make that crystal clear. I am not a Navy SEAL. I was a Navy corpsman, not a Navy SEAL. So I want to be crystal clear about that. Um, so anyway, I thought it was one of the team guys or one of my students playing a joke on me or one of my guys, but he was dead serious about it. And the first thing out of my mouth was, you don't need a paramedic for something like that. You need a physician, a, a, an OR suite, a trauma center, whatnot, uh, because what you're talking about is something, obviously, it, it, we can't put a show on Discovery Channel like that today because you can't ride on the back of white sharks. It's harassing the animal. It's not good for the animal. Uh, Personally, I don't think it hurts the animal at all, but people freak out when they see any kind of interaction between human and shark species. That's that's pretty apparent when you take a look at Ocean Ramsey and what she does in Hawaii. People are freaking out all the time about what she does. So that being said, is you know setting up for this Guadalupe Island thing, I immediately started to look at what the odds were, and they were stacked against me. Uh, just from get-go. And every single trip out to Guadalupe, the odds are stacked against me. Now, Guadalupe Island has got a co-op fishing uh, village on there of about 35 Mexican families. Um, and uh, they run the lobster fishing that's out of there, and they, 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 they dive with these white sharks every single day. And when I'm telling you 
white sharks. We're talking about everything you can imagine white shark wise, big 1500 pound, 2000 pound animals. Uh, my team was uh, with Greg Skomel when we tagged uh, deep blue. So we were one of the ones that tagged the biggest white shark. I think that's on record right now with the tag in it. <clears throat> and she's a big girl. Um, and that's also one of the sharks that uh, Ocean Ramsey does a lot of stuff in Hawaii. I've seen a lot of pictures with her. Anyway, long story short, the point of the matter was, is this uh, show was following Andre Hartman, a very famous South African shark wrangler and expedition leader um, who was, um, you know, pivotal in a lot of white shark stuff. This uh, show was about filming him ride these white sharks in Guadalupe. So you have an island. 33 Mexican families. There's no medical care whatsoever. They fly a doctor in every once in a while to do, you know, basic, you know, community health stuff. Uh, there is no emergency room clinic. They rely on the, on the Mexican Navy for any type of emergency. Medivac is impossible off Guadalupe. Their airfield is on top of the island. So you have to take a rickety road like MASH, you know, the old school 4077, you know, Jeeps walking up the road, you know, nice and slow with the patient on the hood of the, of the truck. That's exactly how it would go down. <clears throat> um, helicopters can't fly in there uh, because the distance is too great. Uh, Coast Guard has to refuel. Um, so, it, you know, it doesn't leave a whole lot of options for any kind of help coming. So as a paramedic, I was pretty much out there all alone, you know, um, and in preparation for this was just absolutely, you know, how do you start? So I got a medical director um, to sign off on my protocols. I made sure what the rules were in Mexico, what I could do and couldn't do. I made it perfectly clear to everybody that if something happens out there and somebody gets bit by one of these larger animals, it doesn't matter who's out there. It's, it's, it's over. That's it. Um, so the whole point was, is I went in there as a medic and ended up being, uh, taking on a safety role because I, I knew if something happened, that would be my first and last shark week show. And, uh, and also, um, you know, as I got to know the guys in the expedition and, and who I was out there with, um, these people turned into my friends, you know, and the, the last thing that you want is something bad to happen to your friends. So I, I take on the safety role now, which is I coordinate all the dive safety. And that's the other aspect of this. Not only are we diving with big animals that have a tendency to do squirrely things, uh, unannounced, um, we were free diving with them, but we were also using compressed air. So now you talk about anybody who's being, um, you know, uh, a shark, and I, I like to say shark accident. If there's actually a shark accident, it will turn into a dive accident also, because I don't care how calm and how cool you are underwater. If you have an encounter with a business end of a white shark, you are going to change your depth rapidly whether the shark does it for you or you do it to get away from the shark. So there's, there's a, a definitive risk also for a dive emergency. And once again, no chamber, uh, no emergency room <laughs> and no clinic, no doctor, no nothing. Um, so, uh, yeah, so it was like, it was a great trip and, uh, we ended up pulling, I mean, it's still, I think personally, one of the best shows on shark week ever period. Um, the, the footage that we got Andre riding these sharks out in the middle of, of nowhere. And there were times that we had Steve, I'm telling you, bro, we had, you know, six, seven white sharks circling around like a pack and they would almost work cooperatively together. And we were surrounded by them for 14 days. I'd never seen a shark in my life. I was an avid surfer, you know, diver. Um, I, I did a lot of spearfishing in San Diego, but I'd never been around a real shark um, until I got out to Guadalupe. So my experience was right off the bat, free diving with them. 
That was it, right off the bat. So everybody was anybody who was safety doing safety in the water. We were in the water backing up Andre uh, during the filming. So if I wasn't on deck, uh, standing by, I was in the water doing safety. And uh, obviously, go ahead. What's what's your next question? What happens if you yeah. get bit? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, thank, yeah. Thanks for adding to my fear. You know, I, I've always <laughs> been afraid of just the solo shark, but now, you know, hearing this, uh, you know, shark pack, uh, that just really, uh, escalated. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it's incredibly, in, I mean, I can't even be, where do you begin with, you know, how do you prepare for the challenges of what, you know, you are facing there? You know, the, you know, I know that you're down here now on the Cape and you're planning, you know, for uh, a program uh, looking at our uh, great white shark population, uh, you know, here on the, oh, not looking, here, not looking, we're, we're, we're doing going there to, to, to develop a deterrent that works. I mean, I, I personally, I'm, I'm kind of like the, the outspoken one of my group, um, that the team that I travel with, I travel with kind of like a, a, a team of guys that they, you know, that, that shark discovery channel goes, all right, we're going to have Shaquille O'Neal or Michael Phelps or Mike Tyson or any of the big high ditch celebrities, their insurance people want the A team, uh, taking care of them or whatever it is, the A team on paper or certification, whatever you want to call the A team, we are the high risk team for discovery. So whenever they send out celebrities, we go. So the guys that I'm working with, we're all kind of um, cut from a different thread. We're all, you know, crazy in our own sense, um, as crazy as it gets. Um, but, you know, the bottom line is, is, um, you know, planning for these things with these guys. Um, we're going there to Cape Cod to actually develop deterrence because the time is over. We can track all we want. We can we can look at pinnipeds, uh, you know, and and the, and the increase in them because we're protecting them as well as protecting the sharks. And there's more people you know going to the beach these days and more money to spend and during COVID and look at a number of different things. But it all boils down to one thing: deterrent. We have to deter these sharks to get them away from these areas where an attack will occur. Give the lifeguards an ability to uh, deter the sharks and also. So I put a permanent deterrent in some areas so we can keep the tourist money coming in and the sharks can coexist and there's not a big hunt for them because it, it, it's coming down to the point. There's a lot of politics going on, you know, living up there. Uh, people right. are people are scared and they're scared they're going to lose their livelihood um, because I tell you, ecotourism ain't going to bring in the numbers a beach is going to bring in. You know what I mean? So right. people going going there have houses there because they want to be on the beach. They want to be able to get in the water. They want to be able to feel safe. Um, so the time for tracking sharks and tracking sea lion behavior and shark hunting behavior and all that, that time is done as far as I'm concerned because we're having fatalities. Um, we have to develop a safe deterrent to keep these sharks away from swimmers, keep the swimmers safe, have a plan to act if a shark comes in an area and um, and obviously prepare people um, and prepare the public You know, um, with education education on, on when not to go in the water, you know, and if you have to set up swimming areas with these shark deterrents, then that's what you have to do, but there's going to be a choice and it's going to end up being the tourist dollar. And that's just my little political point on it, but the, the tourist dollar will win and they will go out and hunt these sharks down. So, no, I, um, yeah, absolutely. And you know, I, you probably are aware, um, there is an annual shark hunt, uh, you know, in, mm -hmm. uh, Nantucket Martha's Vineyard. Um, and that has been, you know, something that's gone on for decades. Um, and, you know, so that, that is, you know, one thing that I think, you know, has been, has been impactful for many people, you know, this idea that, you know, that, that, you know, these are, are huntable animals and that, uh, 
you know, it, it's part of a, a fishing industry. Um, and oh. I think we're starting to see that change. Uh, but, you know, there's still, you know, people that, that that's how they feel we can manage this is by calling, you know, as many sharks or, or even calling the seals, you know, to really uh, remove that, you know, uh, draw for these sharks to the area. Um, that's why they're here. They're here for the food. Um, you know, there are many people who feel that's the ecologic answer to this. And clearly that's not. And I'm, I'm really interested in these, you know, hearing what you have to say about these deterrents. I have a full, I have a notebook full of, you know, ideas of like lasers and satellites. If you ever want to tap into that, um, they're mostly, Man, crazy, but anything, because I mean, that's where, that's, that's where our team is at right now is we're, we're caught, you know, the show, I might as well just say the title of the show is called Saving Jaws. And um, Saving Jaws, uh, Cape Fear is, is the title, but we're also going to go to California. We're going to go to Maui because it's just not white sharks. It's tiger sharks um, and, and bull sharks, as well as oceanic white tips. And in the Bahamas, Caribbean reef sharks are wreaking havoc. And uh, obviously, if you saw Jackass on uh, Shark Week this year, you saw that rescue, which was probably one of my gnarliest, you know, or dumbest rescues of my career. And I can tell you how that all went down because that's a story in itself. But these animals are beautiful. They're awesome in the water. I love free diving with them. I love being in the open water with them. I hate being in a cage with sharks around me. I, I just, they're, they're just unbelievable animals. And you just have to pay attention to their behavior when you're in the water, but you can't teach that to the public. You can teach the public, though, don't go in the water when a gigantic bait ball of thousands of fish are coming on shore and they're being chased by something under the water, right? <laughs> you can tell them don't go in the water when that's happening, but there, there's just not any kind of – we can barely keep people out of rip currents, much less keep them out of the water when they're sharks. However, I think people have a healthier respect for sharks than they do rip currents. But, but, but you know, rip currents kill more people than shark attacks a hundredfold. Absolutely. I've actually, you know, I've thankfully not had a a significant encounter, but I, I was um, on on a kayak with my wife in in the waters uh, uh, in coastal Maine when all of a sudden, um, you know, a large school of fish um, started, uh, you know, uh, passing by, chased by some seals, uh, and that was the point where I'm like, oh God, what's behind this? Um, Thankfully. It was a minke whale, uh, which yeah. uh, I now have greater respect for the size of minke whales. Normally, um, you know, here on uh, on the Cape, you know, when we do whale watching, minke whales are kind of like a, oh, there's a minke whale, but we're going to blow by that because we're looking for, you know, North Atlantic uh, right whales. We're looking for humpbacks, the, you know, the, the fauna that people really enjoy seeing. Uh, but it was, yeah. it was an incredible experience. Um, but um, so... You know, I've, I've been I've been out in the, I've been out in the water, Steve. Before I, yeah. I got to tell you this, bro, because it's so crazy. I've been in the water, but we we do a lot of stuff in the Bahamas, and at night when you're on a boat for eight, nine, ten days, you know, you, you want to jump in the water at night. You know, we turn the lights on. You know, everybody's kind of hanging out and having a couple beers, and you know, planning for the next day or whatever. Um, and I've actually been in the water at night in the Bahamas and had a remora come up and attach himself to me, a big remora. And my first thought was, what is this on me? I knew it was a remora. I where is the shark this thing just came off of do you know what i mean because it was it was good size and they were and they were out there we just couldn't see them because our lights were only going so far that we're you know being cast off the boat so obviously i got out of the water <laughs> yeah i think that's a good good idea um yeah so but let's that's, actually, that's, yeah no, sorry let's ahead. let's actually talk how so 
you know, you're, you're, you're very experienced in this area. I'm sure that, you know, has, you've built on that year after year. Uh, let's talk a little bit about, you know, how do you prepare for this type of medical, what is your medical intelligence? Uh, you know, what are the, the, the ways that you kind of prepare for this type of mission? Uh, I think, you know, this has application not to just, you know, what you're doing on the waters, but this has application for people doing any type of, you know, remote work, austere work. Medicine, is, medicine, period. Medicine. Yeah. Street, so, street medicine, period. It, it, yeah, absolutely. There's lots of application there. So what's your kind of method? What's the method to your madness for, you know, preparing for these types of missions? Uh, and, and what are some of the lessons learned? And then I want to talk about your, uh, your, your rescue, uh, uh, you know, with Jackass, because that sounds absolutely fascinating. I'm sure our listeners would love to hear that as well. <laughs> um, so preparing for it is a feat in itself. And, you know, obviously I do a lot of, um, you know, uh, um, you know, like you said, intelligence gathering, um, if that's what you want to call it. So anybody, any of my friends who might listen to this are going to be laughing right now. Um, me talking about intelligence, but, um, it, it's a lot of, it's a lot of on the phone, online, you know, uh, stuff on the, on the internet and, and it, you can dig pretty deep, but, um, I, I look at, first of all, how can I get them out of the situation that we're in? You know what I mean? That's the first thing I look at. I don't even look at the medical care because the medical care is pretty constant. I'll bring extra things with me for going to a certain area that might have, you know, um, you know, something that, you know, I, I don't know. I can't even think of any time I've ever, ever packed anything beyond a normal array of stuff. I don't pack any venom or anything like that. Um, but um, the medicine is pretty constant as far as what I'm going to do. It's either going to be a fatal or non-fatal injury. Um, and uh, depending on how remote we are, we're talking, uh, you know, that non-fatal injury in some places look at it and go, this is going to be a fatal, you know what I mean? Because of the amount of blood loss or, 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 or whatever. So that, that being said, anybody could go, Oh, well, why don't you carry, you know, you know, blood products with you or um, why don't you carry, um, you know, central line kits and, and, and all this other stuff. Um, because quite frankly, just like a special forces medic, I don't have room for all that crap. And, 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 and blood would be great to carry, but in a tropical environment and the environment that I work in with shark week, there's no way to maintain any kind of quality assurance um, to keep it safe. Do you know what I mean? It's just, it's just not a, a thing. So everything's focused on me getting them, out of the situation and evacuating them. So I have, you know, a couple um, uh, um, airvac services, civilian airvac services that I use. Um, first of all, that I set up wherever I go, um, <clears throat> meaning I pre-file insurance paperwork. We all know air medevac, right? In the private industry, they're not lifting off. Wheels ain't rolling unless they know they're getting paid. Do you know what I mean? That's just the fact of the matter. So any of these inter-facility, non-emergent uh, or a non-emergent um, uh, flight uh, fixed wing uh, mostly fixed wing um, uh, medevac uh, uh, services, they aren't going to roll unless they're paid for. And then the closer, the further you get out of the country, out of out of the United States, the worse that becomes. Like 
everybody gets paid. The guy at the airport gets paid. Uh, the guy that turns the lights on at the airport gets paid. And we'll talk about the jackass rescue in a minute because that came down to it. Um, you got to pay off the ambulance guys. You got to pay off, you know, the cops. You got to pay off. I mean, you're paying off everybody in addition to paying for the service. So it's. It, I, I find that it's real difficult to find people who are trustworthy and who are really on point when it comes down to it. And once again, we'll go back to the jackass thing in a minute here and we'll talk about that point. The other thing is, 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 is the Coast Guard. I tell you what, mad props to the Coast Guard and those guys. They have been doing life-saving work you know, since the 1800s um, all along uh, all the coast of the United States. And uh, I tell you, you want to know something about evac capabilities and, and how to get somebody out of something, the Coast Guard's always my first call. And then with that, I try to find out the intel of what their capabilities are, which are in 90% of their operations, they don't have anything above an EMT. So the thing is, is I have to figure out, will they let me go with them? Probably not. So I have to have that patient stabilized and ready for that EMT. I'm going to have to pass that patient down to a lower level of care to get them to where they need to go. If we go back to the Guadalupe Island expeditions and stuff I do out there, that, that trip's a I mean, literally, if we call in Coast Guard, it's going to be a rendezvous, hoist pickup, an open ocean, and it's going to be basically a seven-hour call is before they get into San Diego. So I'm looking at anywhere from six to eight hours before I get them into San Diego at a level one trauma center. So, and, and that's a dive chamber too. So as you can imagine, any kind of catastrophic bite, any type of significant dive emergency with neurologic compromise or my God, you know, you know, pulmonary embolism, uh, air gas embolism, man, you know, I, I'm working against everything. <laughs> now, once again, it goes back to money. Could we put a portable dive chamber on the, on the boat? Sure, we could do that. Could we put, uh, uh, you know, a surgeon out there with whole blood? Um, sure, we could do that. Um, but they're not going to pay the money. No one's going to pay the money for that because the instances are so rare of things happening. Insurance isn't going to pay for it. The studios aren't going to pay for it. And quite frankly, everybody's aware of the risk that, that, that I'm out there with and they know the risk, all the shark wranglers, all the safety divers I work with, everybody knows what the risk is out there and they're doing it um, because they're good at it. So it's kind of one of those things. It's like stuntman stuff, right? We know what the risk is. Here's my waiver. If I get injured out there, I know I could die. I'm not going to hold anybody accountable. And they sign that, but that doesn't take away the psychological factor of my friend being bit. <laughs> you know what I mean? So uh, preparing for that is, 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 is once again, it goes back to me getting that patient to legitimate medical care because I'm a paramedic, man. I can, you know, I can put an EJ in somebody with a blood pressure of 60 pounds, no problem. Um, so I don't need a central line kit for the most part. I can drill an IO if I have to. Um, you know, there's a, a lot of things I can do and I can carry equipment wise out there, but uh, people are right. You do need blood out there. You do need a surgeon um, to stop some of this catastrophic bleeding from a significant amputation um, to go in there for, especially from, you know, uh, you know, the thigh or the, or the, or the upper leg. And <laughs> I, I, I don't even want to think about it but I think about it all the time. And as I get closer to these expeditions, it consumes me and it consumes me um, to be just the, you know, um, the safety guy that you, uh, that I'm constantly fighting, fighting with my friends, fighting with the safety divers, fighting with everybody to keep them wrangled in and away from these sharks at certain points. And, you know, 
one of my things that I, when anybody's, any of my friends are in the water, whenever we're filming and people are in the water, I like to be as high up as I can get on the boat so I can see everything that's going on. Um, because you can actually tell, you know, a switch in shark behavior, you know, to pull people out. And if um, an emergency occurs, it's real easy to lose people in the water. You know what I mean? Because everybody's focused on that emergency and everybody else is kind of ignored. If that makes any sense. And God, you know, God rest his, you know, God rest his soul. Um, Rob Stewart, that's what happened to him. His uh, partner, you know, he popped up um, in the water um, with his partner who was hypoxic. They were doing rebreather dives. He was hypoxic and his partner, you know, was basically unresponsive. So all the focus was on his partner. Rob appeared to be okay, gave the thumbs up to the dive deck. Dive deck worked was uh, turned their attention to working on the uh, uh, Rob's partner and Rob sunk below the surface and wasn't found for, I think eight hours. So that was a big loss to the shark world. You know, that was a guy that did shark water. So I've taken that lesson and written that into all my EAPs. As far as preparation, we all talk about what the diver recall is. If there's an emergency, everybody's out of the water. I call it the Rob Stewart protocol. Anything that happens, it takes attention off the situation at hand. And there's something new that's, that's, that's added that takes away the safety and the dive master's attention. Everybody's out of the water, period. And I don't mess around about it. I've, I've shut down production before, which is I have the power to do that, <clears throat> which is crazy. That I can shut down million-dollar production because of safety and I've done it before, but it's also one of the things that you don't want to do because no one wants a safety guy being that guy <laughs> shutting down production. But from what happened, I mean, my God, you know, the Alec Baldwin thing, I mean, sounds like, you know, I, I don't know, I can't judge, but, you know, that's, you know, there's some safety issues there. There's got to be, there's got to be safety issues. And that's well, the thing is, is shutting down. So how do you prepare for it? Well, I, to tell you the truth, man, everywhere you go, it's different. Um, and you know, I like to take a look at also the medicine, what's allowed out there. What do they allow the paramedics to do? How stringent are they? Um, and, and I also look at, I'm on the open sea too, most of the time. So I get away with a little bit more, uh, out there. Um, as long as I'm not being negligent and going out of my scope of practice, um, I, uh, you know, I can kind of practice a little bit of advanced stuff that we would practice in the military as a Navy corpsman. I also have a medical director that I can call on the sat phone. And of course, Dan, the Divers Alert Network is an excellent resource. So if anybody's listening to this right now, uh, there's a couple of things and my, my, uh, uh, keys to success. Um, Dan is one of them. Um, and they have a, you know, those physicians that are always on call that can, you know, uh, give you advice and you don't have to be a Dan member to use Dan. That's what everybody has to understand. To pay for services, Dan Insurance pays for chambers and emergency rooms or anything that would happen on the dive. But to use their medical services and their phone console for dive emergencies or aquatic envenomation or anything like that, uh, Dan is a free service. So, info only. Well, that's good to know. I mean, so I think, you know, the, the take-home points from that, and I think this is applicable to any kind of, you know, uh, work, be it, you know, even in, in the streets, but particularly, you know, in austere environments is pre-planning, knowing your resources, uh, knowing your capabilities. Uh, but I also, I think, you know, people also need to recognize that you do still have to practice, you know, within your scope of practice. You know, I, I think a lot of people, especially, you know, those who go to other countries to do medical work, um, you know, it's, it's critical that you understand that, you know, you still need to practice within your scope of practice and that these aren't training, you know, uh, ex expeditions, 
uh, you still have to provide that level of care that you're trained and certified to provide. And I, I've seen that, you know, I've worked in Haiti and, uh, you know, where people who, you know, escalate their, their scope of practice just based on the fact that they're in another country. Um, and that really can, you know, uh, cause some significant problems, not only for that individual, but also for those, for those, for those people that you're taking care of. So I think that's a really important uh, point. Um, yeah. And, and, yeah, and again, yeah, please, please. You know, looking at, you know, looking at that, see, you're absolutely a hundred percent right. And I get medics that go, Oh, how do you get into it? Or like, I can't go on an expedition. So I'll send, I've got a group of medics that I send out on various expeditions that I work with kind of a core group a co-op, if you want to call it that. But I also, you know, kind of people break into the business and they go, what do I need to take? I go, well, there's some certain things that you need to remember. Number one, you're practicing in someone else's country. So you can't do crazy stuff. And if you mess up, that's on you. And it's, and, and it's going to be on you for a very long time. It may not cost you your license in America. It may not, you know, have any residual legal problems, but you're working on people and you're taking care of patients. And the number one thing is do no harm, you know, M is for mobile and do no harm. <laughs> so, okay. I mean, you've got to be able to take care of patients on the move, get them to where they need to be because you're a paramedic. Don't play doctor out there. Now, one of the big things, and I think since you've done expedition work also, um, and especially in Haiti, right? Infection. That's the big one, right? So, out of scope of practice, if you really talk about paramedics working expedition, out of scope of practice as far as my level, the furthest I really go is antibiotics, broad spectrum antibiotics. And you, it's not really out of scope because it's within paramedic scope. We did it in Colorado. We gave, you know, two grams of ANS or a gram of ANSEF, you know, for any open fracture in the mountains, uh, you know, during rescue work. So I've been giving broad spectrum antibiotics, but to actually keep somebody in and go like, we're not going to evac this person. I think we can get through it. Uh, we're not going to stitch the wound closed because that's the big rookie mistake out there. They stitch the wound closed. It gets infected. They have no antibiotics and, and you're in a third world country. <laughs> and you're already 12 hours behind the eight ball. You know what I mean? Yeah. So in Cuba, I had a crocodile attack, right? So yeah. um, Melissa Marquez was attacked by a crocodile underwater at night. We were doing a night dive with the crocodile itself. And it was a crocodile that was pretty much, you know, pretty habituated to human activity. Um, you could literally whistle, go out on the back deck <clears throat> of the houseboat and whistle, and the crocodile would come right to you. They could, if that crocodile could be on a mission, um, you know, uh, 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 to fifteen hundred meters away, and if you whistled loud enough, that croc would turn and come right to the back of that boat deck every single time. So, me and my buddies actually went free diving with it before the incident happened. Long story short, <clears throat> um, uh, 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 just a matter of circumstances, the the perfect storm. Uh, Two separate light rigs failed underwater, which put everybody into darkness, which obviously, if you know, crocodiles are opportunistic hunters, right? Um, and this is a saltwater, an American saltwater crocodile. Um, and also, uh, there are, are, that wasn't the only crocodile that was there. So lights went out. Uh, divers got separated. Uh, Melissa got separated from the pack and her safety diver trying to recall everybody in because it turned into a chaotic situation. The crocodile came up grabbed Melissa from the back on her calf and started dragging her into the mangroves. So this, she weighs about 110 pounds. She rocks. She was screaming. And when I say screaming, kind of a calm scream, right? But, but just absolutely a trooper because I don't know if I would be able to handle it, but she was being drug in, you know, to the mangroves by a large croc. So, you know, 
um, the safety divers kind of reacted um, uh, to some kind of, you know, uh, um, um, activity in the water. They didn't know what was going on. No one really knew. Comms had failed. Everything had gone wrong. I jumped into the water, um, pitch black. And, and when you talked about dreams as a kid, my worst, the dream that I always have as a kid is a crocodile in a pool and me jumping in the pool as a kid and being attacked. That's always been my dream, my, my nightmare. So jumping in, pulling her out, um, the crocodile never re-engaged. That he actually let her go, I think, because he tasted the wetsuit. Um, and then we ended up pulling her out. Now, this, this, the point of the story is, is going back to the antibiotics and practicing out scope. I was in Cuba. We were in a place that was um, easily 14 hours from Havana, um, or I'm sorry, uh, 20 hours from Havana, 14 hour boat, uh, a boat ride to get to where uh, we need to be. And then also a uh, three or four, five hour road, uh, you know, by highway uh, into Havana. Havana is the only place that's got any kind of medical stuff, right? So to get where we were, the garden of the queen, it was literally a, a, an act of, of, you know, Castro himself uh, to get a patient out of there. So when she got bit, I had open wounds from a croc attack, right? So immediately it's, it's staph, it's flesh-eating bacteria. Everything's going through my mind because I knew she wasn't going to die from it, right? Lean was controlled. She lost very little blood. So I knew she wasn't going to die. The point was now the infection from it. I knew I was going to have to medevac her. She had compartment syndrome was starting to develop. You can see because of the crush injury and the calf. And, you know, basically I, um, you know, stuck a hose in each one of the crock holes, rinsed it out, and then, and this is another key to anybody who's listening, Dakin solution. I always travel with bleach. So uh, in Cuba, this is what saved, probably saved her leg, is I, I ended up making Dakin solution because what had happened is Cuba refused to medevac her. Um, the Garden of the Queen, people who were running the uh, operation itself, felt that she was not a critical case. It was at night when she got bit. We had to wait. Um, and then we couldn't get authorization to do anything else because anything in Cuba is you have to have permission to do it. You don't even have radios over there. I had no telephone. I had one landline that went out. And I could only use it for five minutes at a time to try to get any kind of medical advice from my doctor here in America. So just trying to get medical advice to treat this patient. Because I was going out of scope of practice, right? I was treating wounds. I was um, uh, developing a wound care plan, and I was administering antibiotics. Well, her first round of antibiotics that I administered, she immediately had an anaphylactic reaction to it. So I had to give her epi. Her blood pressure dropped to nothing. She vomited, you know, her entire blood volume out, um, not bleeding, but, you know, her entire interstitial volume. And uh, she was dehydrated, and obviously, you know, there was a start of infection. So we couldn't get her medevaced out for about 36 hours is, is by the time I got her out of there. She was in she, she was in Florida at Jackson Memorial, I think, within 72 hours, and she was infection-free by the time we got her there. So I was doing literally two, three-hour dressing changes, irrigating the wound with Dakin solution, and that's D-A-K-N or D-A-K-I-N-S, Dakin's solution. Um, and it's a lifesaver out there for any type of marine envenomation, any type of marine wound, uh, anything like that. It's, it's taking solution all the way. So long story short is I had the plan. I had the plan to give the antibiotics. I couldn't confirm it with the doc. I went ahead and did it on standing order. She had an anaphylactic reaction to it. I had to treat her for that. And now antibiotics were off the table. I had nothing else. So, <clears throat> and I was alone. I had nobody else there. I had a guy that was a nurse, a former nurse that, that, that spoke Spanish, um, and he was uh, helpful. But, I mean, 
You know, it's, it's, it's a very alone feeling when everybody's looking at you going, come on, dude. And I'm just sitting there going, I'm just a paramedic. <laughs> you know? So, um, and, and it goes back to the, the big question at the end of this is then why take on the responsibility? You know, you're just a paramedic. Can't you just turf it? Well, they'll find another paramedic to do it. It won't go to a doctor. It'll go to a paramedic. You know what I mean? And a set medic. And that's a gamble of what kind of, you know, what kind of medic you're going to get from that. So anyway, our set medics typically, and I'm not bashing on set medics. I'm just saying set medics that, you know, work, um, work, uh, you know, and do a, a, you know, wheel of fortune um, every week uh, aren't, aren't going to be equipped um, or, or probably um, within the scope of practice to manage anything on an expedition like that. So but that, that ended up working out okay, and she ended up doing just fine, and um, there were no residual problems. And I don't even think they gave her antibiotics uh, at Jackson. I think they let it go. Fascinating story. I, I, I can't imagine that set medics from Wheel of Fortune would be able to replicate uh, that experience for sure. Well, uh, that's nothing on them. It's just – it's well, just, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's, exactly. It's I'm, literally I'm, I'm 25 years of, 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 no, 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 I, I know you're kidding around, and, and but it, but it's true. The guys that work Hollywood and stuff, most of them are retired medics. They're EMTs, first of all. They're not paramedics. 90% of your, can I tell you the most abused word in Hollywood is medic. You know what I mean? Right. Um, 90% of your medics on the sets are not even EMT. I, I wouldn't even say EMT certified. They're first aiders, they have a first responder card, they used to be an EMT, that's usually the background story. Because a lot of guys call me and go, hey, I want to get into what you're doing. I go, you need to be a paramedic, and you need to be practicing. You can't not be a practicing provider and go on these things. Right, absolutely. Well, we're, we're coming up on our uh, time limit here, but I think you know that, that was a fascinating story. I want to hear a little bit more, you've already led into this about the experience with Jackass um, you know, who, uh, had a pretty significant shark encounter as well. Can you yeah. lead us into that and then, uh, talk about, you know, what that experience was like and, and again, you know, some of the challenges you faced, uh, with that experience. Sure. I'll, I'll try to keep it short. I'm sorry if I'm being long winded. <laughs> I don't usually tell these stories. So, um, I, I just don't know what the format to keep it short. Cause there's a lot of points that I've learned my mistakes in the field and, and what I've come to. So for, if we go back to the planning thing for Jackass. Um, we were in the Bahamas, um, obviously Jackass, the word Jackass and the movie and their whole shtick is getting injured. That's their thing. They get paid for their injuries, basically, if you want to get right down to it. Not officially, but the bigger the injury, the more wow factor, the more money they get, the more followers, yada, 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 right down the line. So I knew I was going there, and they weren't concerned about safety um, as much as I was, And um, but yet they were safe, if that makes any sense. They were they were talking, but it, it was the point was is everybody was focused. We've got to get that shot with the shark. We've got to do this thing. Well, we were doing the um, – Fonzie jump uh, over uh, 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 sharks, and it was the end of the day. Um, the guy uh, that was, um, you know, wakeboarding. I was pulling him on the jet ski. It was a rental jet ski. They rented us two jet skis. I had no rescue sled. I was put in a position without a rescue boat to shoot this, and I should have called it. And that was my mistake. I probably should have called that and said, "Enough is enough. We've got a lot of good stuff today. Let's just regroup tomorrow and come back at this." But everybody was ready to go. We had the ramps out there. Everything was built. Everything was going. So we continued on. So I just think everybody denies that, but I still think that I should have called it, but everybody says everything's good. So long story short, 
going to jump the sharks. I was pulling him on the jet ski. He uh, didn't stick to the jump, uh, ended up hitting the surface. Uh, Caribbean reef sharks, about five or six of them, immediately went on him. Um, one of them got a hold of his wrist and hand and basically partially amputation, severed both radial ulnar arteries, uh, all the ligaments, all the tendons, bone, everything just basically was just a, you know, partially just hanging there, right? Uh, from, uh, if you don't know if you're a fan of uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, but from when I flipped around with the ski to go back after him, because I immediately saw what happened because the shark was on top of him when he got attacked. So I, I flipped the ski around to go back after him and I could see the blood spurting out of the wound as I approached. There was no way I was going to be able to grab his wrist and pull him onto the back of the ski. So I had no, no choice but to ditch the ski and go in the water, see if I could scare the sharks off from him by making a big, huge shadow, you know, a presence by, I mean, we saw the way I jump in at just a big jump as I could get to scatter the sharks safety divers I knew were already coming up to get him and we had to move him to the back of the deck to get the bleeding under control. You can't control bleeding in the water. That's the bottom line. I don't care who says what you cannot stop bleeding in the water. All focus is getting that person out of the water. So pull them out of the water. Uh, activate Rob Stewart's protocol where we recall all the divers. I had, knew I had a catastrophic wound. He lost a lot of blood already. If you see the YouTube video, you can see the pool of blood around him as we were swimming him in. Um, I got bumped. I don't know, four or five times by sharks. I, I don't know why I didn't get bit or how I didn't get bit, but by the grace of somebody, I didn't get bit. Um, <clears throat> and that's why I call it one of my stupidest rescues ever because I shouldn't have done what I did. Um, long story short, we got him up, um, you know, took two tourniquets to control the bleeding. We actually had to make a makeshift tourniquet uh, initially because uh, as they were transferring my med gear from the rescue boat over to the main dive boat, which is where we pulled them up to the deck, uh, they dumped all my gear into the water. And it sunk all my gear, tourniquets, trauma kit, AED, all my shit. I'm talking probably $3,000 worth of equipment and stuff just ruined all the way down to the bottom. So I had to find, uh, we did a makeshift tourniquet with a, with a dive bell, um, which worked great. And, um, and with that, I was able to find another tourniquet, put that on, uh, control the bleeding. Then it came down to throwing him in the boat and getting him out of there. So we put them in the boat and draw. Now here's one of the things we talk about preparation, right? Whenever I'm in these third world countries, I don't have ambulances. I can't pick up 911 and call 911. Now in the Bahamas, you think you can do that. You think they have a robust public safety system. They do not. I'll tell you that much right now. It is, it is a safe place to go, but if you get injured there, you're in a lot of trouble, especially on the outer islands. So that being said, we had called 911. So the minute that injury happened, my EAP was the captain was to pull all the divers out of the water. Uh, the first mate calls 911 to have the ambulance waiting for us at the marina. And, and uh, if everything went well, there would be a, a, a Nassau EMT uh, uh, ambulance there to take us to the hospital. Well, I always know, especially in the Bahamas and these Caribbean islands, things fail and plans fail all the time. So I usually pay somebody a hundred bucks just to sit at the marina. So I pay out of my own pocket and, and then charge it back to the studio later just to have a standby driver. I tell them, I don't care what you do. You can hang out here with your girlfriend all day, play checkers with the boys, do whatever, stay sober and make sure this van is wide open if we come up fast in that boat. <laughs> and that's it. Right. And that's paid off on this one because when we pulled up with this you know, with the, with the injured party, with my patient, um, there was nobody, there was no ambulance. You couldn't even hear a siren. And that's one thing I did. I go, can anybody hear a siren right now? Anyone? Nope. Load them into the minivan. And then I did the rest of my care and route to the hospital. And then we got to the Bahamas hospital and that was a whole nother 
That's just a whole nother set of problems once we got there. Um, <clears throat> long story short, and I'll get back to the planning phase too, is I activated my evac plan. And one of the weirdest things, Steve, was I was out there, you know, I'm making the phone call to my evac provider, which is Reva. And I don't know if I can plug them, but they're awesome. Reva out of Florida. And Reva's already got the wheels and getting everything in motion for me. And I'm standing there and I have this moment of, of zen. And I look down and I've got blood all around, like a pool of blood. And I'm looking at myself and going, my cut? Am I bleeding somewhere? That was just how much blood was draining out of my board shorts, my life jacket, and everything on the ground. So literally standing on the sidewalk, I'm calling in a medevac just surrounded by blood. And I go, there, there's no way I could top this. This is it. <laughs> this is the pinnacle. Um, and uh, we ended up calling in the medevac, uh, the air medevac service. Uh, the Bahamas wanted him out of the hospital, but they wanted him out of the hospital their way, which is not very fast, right? They want payment. They want their money paid. They want the bills paid. They want everything taken care of before they even release the patient. So uh, the only fact of the matter is, is, is we were waiting. We had, had, I had an airplane on the tarmac. It was 11 o'clock at night. Um, we were about five hours into the bite, six, uh, four hours into the bite. And, and the airplane on the tarmac uh, was there, and the airport shut its lights off. And, and the hospital had called the airport to say we hadn't paid our bill. The patient wasn't leaving the uh, Bahamas. So I already had that plan in place, too, because I knew we had a fixer that was really good. And I knew our fixer uh, would handle that. So I had to call our fixer and go, listen, go to the airport, give them whatever money it needs to get to get those lights on. we got to get this kid out of here. Then I had one of the attendings, um, uh, orderlies, walk in there with a cell phone, give it to uh, the patient. I said, do exactly what I tell you. Sign out AMA right now. Because in the Bahamas, they still have to follow those laws. They can't keep people against their will. So he literally signed out AMA in a refusal with his good or his left hand, right? And he's walking out, you know, bandaged up. And we throw him in our van and drive to the airport and turn him over to Reva's air crew and got him out of there just in time before the police arrived to shut down the airport again. Now, we had already paid the bill. We had done everything that we were supposed to do. It just we didn't do it the Bahamas way. And they didn't like a bunch of Americans telling them how things were going to go down. But they weren't equipped to do the surgery. You don't want blood transfusions in the Bahamas. So once again, my job was to get that patient to Miami and get him to a surgeon and, 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 and good blood. You know? Well, yeah, I, everything failed. literally everything failed. Everything failed that I knew was going to fail failed. <clears throat> I think, and I think here's the most important question: Did you at any time say it's just a flesh wound? Did <laughs> <laughs> you like that Monty Python reference? Yeah, yeah, that's the uh, that's the Monty Python the whole trail. Just a question, but I, I tell you what, I did do for the very first time in my career after it was all said and done. When I got him originally to Bahamas and to the hospital, and I went back to the hotel to take a shower and get some clean clothes on to go back down there because I knew I was going to have to liaise and I knew I was going to have to lay down the law. It was just going that way. Um, and I've dealt with doctors and nurses my whole career, intelligent ones that have taught me the way to deal with non-intelligent ones. So, uh, you know, being there as a paramedic, talking to doctors, going, this is the way it's going to go down. I need to get this guy out of here. I have an air a medevac plane sitting on a tarmac. I've got Jack's on board. I'm standing by for this guy. We need to get him out of here. And they're like, well, it's going to take a few minutes. We have to wait for this ambulance to get here. and sign this paperwork. It's just, you know, I, I got back to the hotel room and I sat on the bed. And I looked at my watch I, I, at some point uh, before I sat on the bed, and then I, I just literally woke up, like I was sitting in the same position, staring at the wall. I lost an hour's time. It was that much of a dump in the adrenaline because when I jumped in the water, there were at least five or six sharks on top of him, you know, just getting ready to go at it. 
Well, Mike, thanks for sharing this today. I, I think this is probably one of the most unique uh, podcasts I've ever done. Uh, you know, I've talked to people who've done some amazing work, amazing rescues. Uh, this certainly uh, tops many of those with kind of the uniqueness of, of your work, what you're doing, um, the people that you're working with. I really want to thank you for spending your time sharing, you know, your stories, your extensive knowledge and expertise with us today. And thank you listeners for choosing the World Extreme Medicine Podcast as your source of wilderness and extreme medicine education. We're certainly going to have a number of links uh, to Mike's work and uh, to some of uh, his other work uh, that we'll hopefully get an opportunity to spend some time talking about on a future podcast. Uh, for more content like this, Please make sure to follow us on Instagram at World Extreme Medicine, on Twitter at XBedMed. Visit our website at worldextrememedicine.com. And last but not least, join us for the Expedition Medicine Conference in Edinburgh, Scotland, or from the comfort of your own home for our virtual program, November 13th through the 15th. The lineup for this conference is already amazing. It'll be a fantastic event. Thank you again. Thank you all. Be safe out there. And we'll be touching base next time on the World Extreme Medicine Podcast.